I'm Debbie George Adams. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Chase Bank cancels Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, literally. Raymond Ibrahim, Afghan jihadist emboldened. We have a great expert to talk to us about the consequences of what occurred in Afghanistan, calls for resignation, and when censorship is truly evil. Shanna Chapel versus Cindy Sheehan. Of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Over the last 24 hours, Chase Bank, major American bank, canceled the credit cards of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. Not because he didn't pay his bills, not because he was delinquent, not because he defamed them in any way. The bank canceled his credit cards because in the bank's terminology, say they, that he, by them providing credit cards to Lieutenant General Flynn, they were suffering reputational risk. Chase Bank is worried that because they give credit cards to Flynn, provide credit cards to Flynn, that they are going to have reputational risk. And I want to just make three quick points about this at, at this first five. Number one, as I was saying yesterday, and it's just important to always recognize we really are in an ideological war in America. The left fights this ideological war at every point, in every avenue, in ways conservatives just never even think of. So to have a bunch of people pressure Chase Bank, this did not come from the boardroom of Chase Bank. I, I'm guessing it didn't come from the board of Chase Bank. They probably have people on the board who like General Flynn, who don't like General Flynn, who like Trump, didn't like Trump. But the left is relentless, and the left pushes, and the left embarrasses, mocks, ridicules, and uses their power of ridicule, their mob mentality, to twist and torque around American corporations. I'm going to guess somebody on the left decided that, you know, why does, should Lieutenant General Flynn get to use credit cards? Let's embarrass uh, him, Flynn, and let's also put pressure on the bank. And, and many institutions in America find it easier to just capitulate to what the left wants rather than to say, look, we're not going to cancel credit cards because someone is ideologically opposed to some other group. We're not going to do that. It's not like he's a criminal. It's not like he's a bank robber. It's not like he's done some horrible thing. He's just an American hero. In fact, that's my point, too. Think about for a moment who Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is. Among the most astonishing facts about him, he's a registered Democrat. This I cannot explain, but he is a registered Democrat. He has been that for his adult life. He is also someone who served in the Obama administration. Obama administration. The only way, reason that Obama and Flynn got sideways was because General Flynn questioned President Obama's plans and his approach in dealing with the threat of Islam in America, the threat of jihad in America. Flynn and, and around the world. Flynn thought what Obama was doing wasn't wise, wasn't cautious enough. And this angered and embarrassed Obama. 
So you have Flynn worked for Obama, is a Democrat, and then he moves into the White House. And you know, his very, very short tenure as national security advisor under President Trump ended with completely trumped up charges, completely trumped up, not to be not a double entendre, not intended, cooked up charges that had no relationship to reality, and only because of the tenacity of the lawyer, Lieutenant General Flynn, later hired Sidney Powell, did he finally get what he should have had all along, which was acknowledgement from the Department of Justice. They had no reason on the planet Earth to even question Lieutenant General Michael Flynn back in December 2016 into January 2017 as he was beginning his very short tenure as National Security Advisor, only because Sidney Powell pushed and pushed, finally those documents were released, and finally the vindication came that there was no justification, it was a witch hunt from day one, and the charges were eventually dropped. And the third point, what is it that Chase Bank is punishing? Lieutenant General Michael Flynn has been very active in the speaking circuit. He's speaking up about restoration of America. He's speaking up about the dangers in our country as we are losing our freedoms. He's speaking up about election integrity. He is speaking up at conferences around the country and in media around the country about the idea that election integrity is very, very important. So he's defending America, defending election integrity, and he is also a very godly man. He is among the many things he regularly includes in his remarks have to do with the, the power of the faith in his life, his faith having carried him through, the importance of the freedom of faith in America. This is a guy who's basically speaking up, uh, you know, for Americana, for mainstream, main street America. But to that, to Chase Bank, to those kind of thinkers, to left-wing thinkers, this is outrageous and offensive. Chase Bank is going along with the mission of the American left, or as I should, I'm always corrected by a good friend of mine, the anti-American left, which is essentially to shut down free speech on any topic that the current administration has decided you're not allowed to talk about. So you're not allowed to talk about election integrity because they have ruled that as out of bounds. Your freedom of speech is not permitted any longer if you want to question election integrity. This is actually where the left is headed and Chase Bank is deciding it's easier to roll with the left, to salute to the left, to capitulate to the left than to actually look at this record, look what this man is saying, and stand up for him and just say, look, we're not going to cancel credit cards for people who are, you know, Antifa. We're not going to cancel credit cards for people on the left who are rioters, protesters. You know, as long as they pay their bills on time, they haven't been convicted of a crime, we don't cancel credit cards. But Chase doesn't have that courage. They don't have that courage. It was easier for them to just go along with canceling a credit card, easier than putting up with the mockery and derision and attack of the American left. This is one tiny example of what I've been talking about in this show over and over and over, that we are watching the slow crushing of freedoms in America and with very, very few players in America willing to stand up, even corporate players, even large companies unwilling to stand up against the, the tyrannical mob that is today's American left. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. 
I mentioned the start of the show, we have a guest joining us. He joined us once. Actually, I looked it back up to be sure. It was, I think, December of 2019. He's the author of this book, which I did bring with me. I want to, we're going to talk about some other things, but I want to mention his book again. This is his book called Sword and Scimitar. The gentleman's name, the author, is Raymond Ibrahim. He is the author not only of this book. Actually, I want to tell you the subtitle, Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. For those, and I will tell you, as jihad became more um, frequent in, modern, in this modern era, there were literally millions and probably billions in the world who really didn't know the history of Islam, didn't understand that this recent spate of jihadist attacks occurring in Western Europe and America, places around the world, was just actually a long time, a continuation of a long time and actually um, ancient practice engaged in by those who follow very strictly the teachings uh, of jihad, the teachings of, of the Quran and the Islam's um, holy scriptures and other Islamic documents. So these folks have been at this war against wet the West, against Christian society, against Western civilization for not just centuries, millennia, like over a thousand years. And we're just seeing in this modern era today what they've been doing all along. So that was what we talked about in the Sword and Scimitar interview. I want to have him talk about today. I want a much more detail about what um, the, the um, history of what has, has been the long-term battle between Islam and Western civilization, but also what is the impact on the world by our abandonment of the American for abandoning the battlefield in Afghanistan, handing Afghanistan over to the Taliban after 20 years of presence, the, the method by which we handed it over. So it's a, um, it's a very, very challenging thing to recognize and, and important thing to recognize what really it will be the impact and what the um, statement, how it's interpreted to uh, by Muslims, by the Muslim world, especially those engaged in jihad, um, if there are people who um, look at what happened in Afghan Afghanistan and say, wow, America is pretty easy to bowl over. So I'll very quickly tell you, introducing Raymond Ibrahim, widely published author, public speaker, specializes in the Middle East. Uh, he has books, Sword and Scimitar, the one I just mentioned, uh, Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians, and the Al-Qaeda Reader. He has appeared widely um, in media, uh, writings, translations, observations. Um, he even appeared in the New York Times, but we can forgive him for that. CNN, LA Times, Fox News, Financial Times, every prominent um, news uh, show and source uh, has interviewed him. And among the many things I recall from interviewing him previously is he actually reads Arabic. And so he didn't have to count on translations from other people to understand what it is that Islam is teaching his followers. So I could go on and on, but I'd like to actually introduce you and have join us, Raymond Ibrahim. Hi, Raymond. Hi, Debbie. Good to be with you again. Great to see you, great to have you. And I realized while I was doing the introduction, I probably said a lot of the things you might have said in your introduction, but I just wanna, in fact, I'd love to have a pretty detailed description of the fact that what we're seeing today, the conduct of jihad by the Taliban, other extremist organizations in the world, is a continuation of what has been occurring really in the world since Islam came along. And so if you could maybe, Mimi, really take a few minutes, give us a, an overarching big view of the Islamic jihadist attack on Christianity, Western civilization over the, over the millennia. Yeah, happy to. So um, let's start with the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and these people of recent memory. Um, we've been told by the powers that be and you know all the experts 
that when they talk about Islam and the jihadist imperative to conquer quote-unquote infidels, that they are um, essentially hijacking Islam. That's not true as historic Islam. That's an aberration, or at best, it's a very minority subscribed to version of Islam. Well, the truth of the matter is, um, and as, as you say, as I show in my book, because it's dedicated to looking at 14 centuries all throughout, from the very beginning, beginning with Muhammad himself, the prophet of Islam, all the way down until the modern era, the same things that groups like ISIS say and do, which is, uh, you know, invade an infidel territory, infidel meaning non-Muslim, give them three choices, convert to Islam, become a, a third-class citizen, essentially a dhimmi, as they call, pay tribute, and live in a very suppressed and humiliating way, or fight to the death. So that's what ISIS would say, um, and that's actually what Muhammad said, that's what the first caliph said, and it goes on through all the various iterations throughout history, not just the Arab caliphates, the Mongol caliphates, the Turkic sultanates, the Berbers who entered into Spain, and all throughout it was the same exact logic. Even America's very first encounter with Islam, uh, the Barbary Wars, right around 1800, you had Thomas Jefferson meeting with the ambassador of Barbary, and he asked him, why are you raiding our ships and plundering our goods and enslaving our men and humiliating them and killing them and so forth? And that man's response to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams was, it's part of our religion, our holy prophet commands us, everyone who uh, rejects Islam is an enemy and we can kill him, enslave him and so forth. So that is the real true totality of Islamic history. Um, when Islam came onto the scene in the seventh century, in the 600s, uh, if you looked at the Christian world, it was Europe, not even all of Europe, but most of Europe, uh, you know, uh, west and south of the Rhine and Danube and uh, Great Britain, but all of North Africa, all of what we call the Middle East, all of uh, what we call Turkey. In fact, North Africa and the Middle East and Turkey, Asia Minor, were the original and older and richer and really more sophisticated um, region of Christendom. And all of that was um, completely conquered and absorbed and Islamized and Arabized by uh, the Muslims in the 7th and 8th centuries and Asia Minor later in the 14th and 15th century by the Turks. So really, two three quarters of the Christian world was actually permanently conquered. You had you had Spain and uh, Islam in Spain for centuries of and violent nonstop jihads and reconquistas back and forth until the Christians won. You had it in the Balkans again for many centuries until you can go until 1683. Now we're 1,000 years after the date of Muhammad's death, more than, and here they are in the largest city, uh, one of the largest cities in Central Europe. Uh, Vienna, besieging them with something like 300,000 men. And the point is, all throughout that history, the articulation, the motivation of these Muslims was not grievances, was not your racist, was not anything that is um, uh, popular nowadays. It was simply, you're an infidel, and my religion commands you to do, as I, as I mentioned, kill you, subjugate you, and so forth, or force you to convert. And so when we talk, when we hear about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, to me it's meaningless to even give them proper names and dwell too much on their finite manifestation because all of them are just com are in a complete continuum with what Islam has always been from the very start, despite all the lies that we've been fed, especially after 9-11 and, and those attacks, which is the true face of Islam is peaceful, etc., etc. No, the true face of Islam is actually ISIS. Those guys, ISIS, Taliban, they go out of their way to emulate the, the, the jihadists of history, as I show in my book, all throughout, and they even used the formula that they used. So you may remember ISIS used to say, we've tasted American blood 
and nothing tastes sweeter. Well, that comes from a 7th century jihad, jihadist named uh, Khalid bin al-Walid, known as the Sword of Allah. And when he invaded the Eastern Roman Empire, he said, we've tasted Christian blood and nothing is sweeter. That's why we're here. We're not here because of grievances or territorial disputes. So, yeah, I think that is one of the largest um, uh, uh, weaknesses and flaws in modern day Western thinking when it comes to the uh, threat vis-a-vis -vis Islam. That was a great, great summary. And I'd love to dive into a lot of the details about history. But another aspect of all this is that one, you made allusion to how the uh, arguments made, especially by kind of the apologists for jihadists is, well, they have grievances. These things weren't fair. Um, and so they have a, a, a means of manipulating people who aren't aware of the facts, who don't understand the history you just laid out so beautifully. Uh, th so they, they take the modern day experience and say, oh, this must be the problem. It's only because X, Y, and Z. Compounding that with it, it's a psychological manipulation in America, the use of the term Islamophobic, which has, is, you know, is one of the calling cards of the left, one of the battle cries of the left, to shut down any concerns about Islam, that any claim about the danger of Islam, any claim that the uh, jihadists are actually acting in compliance or in accordance with uh, Quran and other uh, holy Islamic teachings, that they that is, is, is Islamophobic to even say that. And so is that part of the whole psychological manipulation? I mean, is the Islamic mindset using that kind of conduct in order to gain control? Absolutely. It's both the Islamic mindset um, exploiting an inherent Western weakness that has been propelled by the, the left, which is this sort of, um, you know, psychoanalytical projection of yourself onto everyone. And you yourself are, of course, a weak, spineless person. And so you're very much caught up with things like uh, you've been humiliated, you've been traumatized, you have daddy issues, whatever. That's all been projected onto the Muslim world. That is not in any way, shape or form applicable to the Muslim world. And in that, I actually salute them and I commend them because they actually are above and beyond these silly categories. To them, it's always just jihad and violence and conquest and I'm stronger than you, therefore I will conquer. But it's not beneath them, of course to exploit that as a weakness. And so it's true, as you say, lots of Islamist groups, Al-Qaeda did this, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is entrenched all throughout America under different names, does this all the time. They, they play on these same you know, leftist paradigms of you're the bad guy because whatever, you're white, you're Christian, you're racist, you're inherently xenophobic. And that's why what's happening is happening. That's why frustrated Muslims are lashing out through terrorism. But as I mentioned, uh, for 14 centuries or 13 centuries, you didn't need a pretext for Muslims to do what they're doing and then some. These caliphates that I described in those wars, they made ISIS look like Boy Scouts, the things they did as far as atrocities and literally mil millions, uh, something like 20 million Europeans between maybe the 9th and 16th century were enslaved in very uh, horrific conditions by Muslims for the same reason. But you don't hear about that. And um, I think we've all learned also that this issue of you know islamophobia trying to shut you down is uh you know part and parcel with everything we're seeing today which is to say that you know i was canceled years before canceling was an, a famous thing you mentioned <laughs> you know you found you mentioned that was on the new york times and all that this is true but i they'll never come near me again because of the things that i say uh right now so uh so every, as you know now any you know if you say something against uh whatever lockdown measures regarding covid or the presidential elections, you get canceled, you get shut down. So that's been happening to me with Islam a long time ago and others. And and, and it really um, hones in on the fact that this isn't just about Islam, it's just about 
you know, you connecting the dots about anything, whether it's Islam, whether it's what the left is doing, which is usually hand in hand with what the Muslims are doing or the Islamists, as you, if you want to call them. Uh, so I think hopefully people are starting to get an idea of what's really going on. I, I do want to jump on to some points you made in your American Thinker piece, but quickly for our listeners, there, uh, American Thinker has published many articles written by Raymond Ibrahim, our guest today. And so the one that was out yesterday, today, is called The Eternal Jihad. And I linked it on our website, americacanwetalk.org. If you go to our homepage, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links. It's there. It's a great piece that gives a, a really, I mean, in, for, in a two-page article, uh, gives a, a ton of information about uh, the Islamic... Um, the jihad that's occurred since the beginning, the, the jump in time. So I, I'm going to mention a couple of points from that, but um, Raymond, what were those numbers you just said? How many million of Europeans were enslaved by uh, various uh, marauding Muslims during the uh, during whatever time period it was? I want to write that down. <laughs> sure. Well, it depends on who you ask, because most of this is before the, let's say, pre the transatlantic trade, which is, you know, the 1800s. Um, most of this is happening now, you're talking about literally starts in the, in the 7th century and it goes on until about the 17th century. So the records are not as uh, definitive, but well-respected and well-regarded historians, and I can give you their names later on, have put the estimate from anywhere from a 2, 3, 4 million to 15 million Europeans that were enslaved by the Ottoman Sultanate, the um, Mongol Sultanate, the Crimean Tatar Sultanate, which also which thrived on Slavic slaves, mostly uh, Russians, and of course before that, all the Arab Sultanates, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, the slaves they took from Spain and France, um, all those centuries that, uh, and you know, you always hear about Andalusia, the great, you know, wonderful experiment in um, multiculturalism and uh, you know tolerance and religious coexistence. What they don't tell you is Cordoba was actually the center of the Islamic world for white flesh, white slaves, because they would get them from northern Spain, where most of the Christians were holed up, or in France and elsewhere. Uh, so the number is huge. And then you ask um, a lot of historians, um, I can refer to you, and will say it's much more than the transatlantic slave trade. And on top of that, again, if you look at the sources, it was in, almost incumbent on the Muslim to treat the slave in a very um, cruel manner. It wasn't just a, a, a business transaction. You're my slave or I'm selling a person. You had to make sure, because that's what the Quran teaches, that they have to feel humble. They have to feel subdued. So you get a lot of extremely cruel practices that were inflicted on these European slaves. It's truly amazing. One point you make in this article, and I, again, I don't want, I want to turn and talk about Afghanistan in a moment. But one point you made, it's just so uh, illuminating, I thought. You were talking about how Constantinople's defeat of the caliphate, which was August of 718, uh, Seven, I don't mean 1718, I mean 718, the, before we, the year 718, there was this defeat of the caliphate. And this was finally when the Christian Western world was saying no and pushing back on this Islamic, um, on their Islamic suppressors. And then you talk about how, you know, it, we, it moved forward for a long time where we didn't see this issue in the world because they had been pushed back. And then you uh, go back to pointing out um, that only a few years later they reemerged. Um, uh, can we find it quickly here? Uh, yeah, the 14 to 17. So 17, 700 years after the people of Constantinople thought they'd seen the last jihad, back again besieging them with it, the city finally found Islam in May uh, of 1453. And I'm just getting at the point. 
If you don't think like a jihadist, if you don't think like someone who thinks your mission, your purpose in life is to subjugate the world to Islam or to your faith, you think, okay, you've defeated them, they go their way, we go our way, but your description, it just kind of jumps out of the page in this article about what's always going on in the, in the mindset of the Islamic world is we're just on pause. We got pushed back, but we're just on pause waiting for our next opportunity. Is that accurate? That's accurate, uh, Debbie. The point of the article was really to underscore modern day Western myopism, uh, the inability to see beyond what we have in front of us. I mean, if you listen to analysts now, it's almost like 20 years ago, didn't even happen. Who were the Taliban? What Are they radical? Can we work with them? You thought we would have known that. But the point of the article was uh, August 15th is when actually the Taliban took over. And August 15, 718 was actually another date with Islam in the Christian world when, as you say, Constantinople defeated the, the Arabs 1,300 years ago, more than. And the point is, uh, you know, at that point, Constantinople had won. It was centuries before any Muslim ever decided to try to attack it. And so if you live there, kind of like if you live in America, you would have thought the Islam thing is well behind us. It's over. Centuries had passed. And yet, lo and behold, in the 15th century, you had a whole new iteration of Islam that had nothing to do with the guys that they remembered, the Arab Umayyads based in Damascus. Now it was Turks in Adrianople. Okay, and they had, and on, the, on the surface, there was no ostensible continuity between the two, except for one thing. Both were Muslim, both attacked Constantinople on the same logic. You're an infidel, con convert, submit to us, or we will fight you. And in the end, uh, you know, the Turks finally won. So it's almost like the, the real enemy was never the Arabs of the Umayyad dynasty. It wasn't even the Turks. It's not today ISIS or uh, Taliban or ISIS-K, whatever name you want to slap on it. It was this concept of jihad that manifests itself. It, it, it goes dormant when it's weak, and it manifests itself once it can in whatever guise it takes, whether it was Arabs in the 8th century, whether it was the Turks in the 15th century, or whether now it's ISIS and Boko Haram and, you know, uh, all these modern-day terrorist groups, Hamas, Hezbollah, we can go on and on. Um, it's the same impetus, the same mentality. And that's why, uh, you know, today, uh, 20 years after basically taking over Afghanistan and annihilating the Taliban, as many thought, and getting rid of Al-Qaeda, here we are, back to square one. And and it's because of this mentality. In, in, people were asked, um, Ayman Zawahri, the current leader of Al-Qaeda, was asked a long time ago, in 2005, when both um, Mullah Omar of the Taliban and Osama bin Laden were basically gone in 2005 and America, America completely taken over. And he, they asked him about him and he said, it doesn't matter about them and it doesn't matter about me because the jihad transcends the individual jihadist. And I think until we start to understand that and, uh, you know, the long term goal of Islam and how much, how far it's gone, I told you, three quarters of the Christian world. And even when it seems beaten and down, if it's not out for the count, such as when Constantinople won in the 8th century, it'll return many, many centuries later in a whole different guise, but still the same impetus of conquest. Okay, I want to turn to now what were the situation we're in, in the modern world. So we had America's troops in Afghanistan for 20 years. Uh, finally, uh, and you know, I'm not, I don't want to go off of the military decision whether that was the right move for us to make 20 years ago, what we should have done differently. But where we are right now, what do you think at, at what is the impact or the way that the Taliban and other um, Islamic jihadists, other, other Muslims, see America now as, after we withdrew from Afghanistan and, and left essentially Americans there who are now 
we don't know what's going to happen to them, left Afghanistan, Afghanistan allies there. What does it do to their perception and their, does it embolden them to feel like America's weak? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you look at the course of Islam throughout history and the precedent, it, it actually, one can argue, and early Christians argue that Islam was not just a heresy, but it was a, a reactionary religion based against the other, namely Christianity. I mean, remember, Islam spends a lot of time talking about Jesus and Mary and all the prophets of the Old and New Testament. Um, but then it essentially, almost as a heresy, it breaks away and it, the thing that, you know, attacks the divinity of Jesus and so forth. Um, so for early Christians, uh, that's what it was. It was actually a counter movement. And in as much as the West or Christians or whoever uh, backed away, were beaten, were uh, appeasing, Islam got very emboldened and actually more aggressive. There's no time in history where you had a strong Muslim um, emirate or caliphate or sultanate next to a non-Muslim and it didn't attack it when it was strong. If there was peace, it was because the Muslim uh, empire or whatever city polity could not actually win at the time, which is much of what's going on since the 18th century or 19th century with the West. It's not that the uh, impetus isn't there. It's that, you know, Islam also allows for a little bit of real politic and uh, you shouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, kill yourself, even though some do, and there's a whole doctrine for that. But at any rate, if you look especially at the colonial era, when the West finally, after being harried for well over a thousand years, um, not only defeated Islam, but, you know, overwhelmed it in the colonial era. What you had isn't what we're told now. You didn't have Muslims who were seething in rage because they were beaten and now, and you know, their ways have been suppressed and, you know. No, it was actually the exact opposite. Muslims went out of their way to mainstream and become Western. So if you look at pictures of the 19th century Muslims, they actually look so much more Western than Muslims today. They all, the men shaved their beards and they wore suits and the women were in high heels and they got rid of the hijab and they introduced all sorts of Western education and so forth. So there's definitely a symbiotic relationship between Western confidence and Muslims uh, being complacent and actually merging with it and Western weakness, which actually pushes Muslims back to radicalization. As Osama bin Laden famously said, when people see a strong horse or a weak horse, they always root for the strong horse. I think that's just a, a principle all across the board for human nature. Um, so definitely what happened now in Afghanistan, that far from satisfying Muslims or making them think, well, okay, justice has been served, that will only embolden them uh, for much more of the same. Okay, I want to talk about the Taliban in particular because there have been comments in the media about the uh, president, our current president, saying that he had given... Uh, the story was not actually confirmed. You kind of heard the, the administration talking about both sides of their mouth, agreeing and then not agreeing. But the story was that America handed the Taliban a list of Americans still remaining inside Afghanistan, as well as a list of people who were Afghani who had been aiding and helping the Americans and were essentially asking the Taliban, can you please assure safe passage for these people? How bad was that to do? Obviously, that's immensely bad. And like you, you know, I, I, enough evidence to make a, um, you know, a decisive conclusion is still not possible. What I'll, I'll leave you with this, though, you know, we've seen a very, what we're seeing with Biden in Afghanistan is something we saw with his president that he was vice president to Obama. OK, once Obama came, that is when you had what was called by the media, by fake news, an Arab Spring and what turned into the precursor for ISIS. 
and you had Muslim Brotherhood took over Egypt and uh, and Libya, and then you had the war in Syria, all of which all of a sudden manifested into ISIS taking over Syria and us allying with them and the guys that they're freedom fighters and all that. And now you move forward, you know, you had the Trump. And I can tell you as a person who makes his living reading and following and writing is about radical Islamic movements and so forth. It was pretty quiet those four years under Trump. And then now you have Biden and guess what? All of a sudden Afghanistan is back under the Taliban. The very same guys who we were told were the arch enemy, the evil harborers of Al Qaeda who attacked us 9-11. Now the strongest military in the world, most economic powerhouse, just gave them, last I heard, several billions dollars of worth of weapons, making now the Taliban much more powerful than it ever was before we entered. And I, for one, find it hard, and I think it's um, we're being too lenient when we dismiss all this as an aspect of stupidity on the Biden administration. I don't think so. I think much of this is very much planned. And if anyone connects the dots and look at what's been going on throughout the years, especially under these Democrat presidents, it's, uh, it's very eye-opening. It is very eye-opening. I'll mention to our listener, because I had said, I think yesterday, I mentioned last week, today I originally had scheduled Nani Darwish to be on the show. Nani Darwish, another wonderful expert uh, who actually grew up under Islam and is an American author now. She has written about exactly, Rain, what you were just talking about a moment ago. She's written about that Americans are wrong and, and weak and it's dangerous to attribute to Biden the, uh, that he's just incompetent, and that's why we had the extreme mess in Afghanistan that we had. She's saying, no, not incompetence, intentional. Why, she, she really painted, and there was a great article she wrote, actually an American thinker too. Uh, we had to put off her until a week from now, uh, but she, she'll be coming on then to talk about this idea. But it's really important in America for uh, the citizens to understand it's one thing to criticize the Biden administration for incompetence, arrogance, uh, stupidity, lack of planning, bumbling. as kind of a uh, image you might have of Jimmy Carter, it's kind of bumbling or something. But there is a far deeper concern about what Biden's motivation is in uh, withdrawing American troops from Afghanistan the way that he did. Not in Darwish to talk about that this week. So I know we're almost out of time. We committed to you, Raymond, and I don't. I uh, love having you on. It's just just extremely helpful. So moving forward, if you were advising, if you had a president who would actually listen to your advice, what should we do about the situation now in Afghanistan? Are we just I mean, do we need to show force in order to get the rest of our people out? Or, I mean, what, what do we do going forward? I mean, there's so many things that an American president can do without force. Just think of sanctions. Think, think of economic pressure that could be applied to get, you know, these Americans who are, are, who are still holed up there. Or even get any sort of uh, positive response from them. This narrative that, you know, there's nothing we can do. And like we were saying, this idea that it's just bumbling or stupidity or cowardice, all of that does the, the left's, uh, it actually works for them, this narrative. That's what they want you to think. Oh, okay, yeah, we're stupid. Oh, we're naive. We did something. Ha ha. No, there's a lot an American president can do minus violence, minus warfare. And, and like I said, just an economic sanctions, uh, targeted assassinations, any kind of threat you want to make. I mean, we have the technology to home in on where the leaders of the Taliban are. Maybe a threat about how you're going to be annihilated tomorrow if you don't comply. You know, there's a lot of things that can be done, and you don't. And of course, no president has to tell us this. But the point is, the America can get its will done, especially since it's already given up Afghanistan. So forget about reclaiming it. But at least in something as simple as uh, rescuing your own, which is not pivotal to, to 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 the Taliban. It's not pivotal that they have them. 
I think something like that could very easily be solved if you have the will to do it. All right, Raymond Ibrahim, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate your writing, your thinking, your analysis. I mentioned at the start, you actually read in, uh, in Arabic, and so you're looking at ancient documents with your original uh, reading of them rather than relying on a translator, which I think is just uh, contributes to the extraordinary brilliance you bring to all the issues we're talking about. So um, number one, I'll tell our listeners again, if you haven't read this book, actually it's a great Christmas gift to give to your friends who think that Islam is a religion of peace. This would be a great Christmas gift to give them. Um, and I, I thank you for writing it. Raymond Ibrahim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Debbie. Good to be with you. Great to see you, sir. Okay, I'm going to tell you one quick point about this issue, what we should do uh, militarily, uh, in, um, and also just kind of the reaction uh, from informed Americans. Uh, there is, I call this segment, uh, Calls for Resignation. I want to tell you, you remember I told you, I don't know when this was, months ago now, that there's a group, Flag Officers for America. Flag Officers for America originally issued a warning. It was like 90, and flag officers means a certain level of of a performance and achievement in the military. I tried looking it up once. It depends which branch of the military, who actually is called a flag officer, so I won't go off on that. But these are senior former military officials who've actually dedicated the, the you know, heart and soul of their lives to the American military. Have, have, they rose in the ranks. They became leaders. And they had first a letter basically warning America, flag officer's letter to America, basically saying, we're going over the cliff to Marxism. America, please wake up. And these are revered, revered, honored, decorated, experienced senior soldiers trying to warn America, trying to wave the flag. Well, they have a new letter out calling for resignation. And this is a letter from 90 retired flag officers. And essentially what they're saying is they are calling for the resignation of both Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, as well as Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley. And their point is this. Either they, their advice was what Biden was following what he did in Afghanistan, which he basically announced ahead of time, hey, by the way, we're going to pull out, we're going to let you guys be in charge, and, and pulled out without protecting American military equipment, protecting American, more important, American citizens, American military, American uh, people who are civilians, but over there in some way uh, serving, uh, helping America, plus people who are Afghanis, who are also supporting the American, helping the Americans who are now being hunted down and slaughtered by the Taliban. So the point of this flag officer's letter is, Either you people, again, Chairman, uh, Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, either you advised Biden to adopt this plan, in which case you are the cause of this horrific disaster and the unnecessary deaths of these soldiers who lost their lives due to the suicide bombs outside the Kabul airport and the general chaos now ensuing. And we now still have, we believe in Afghanistan, something in the range of 200 Americans Americans who want to get out. And we've announced, hey, bye-bye, we're all done. You know, we're getting out. Last plane takes off, leaving people there. So the call letter is, either you guys advise Biden to do this, in which case you should resign, or you warned Biden and you told him it was dangerous and he didn't listen to you and he took these actions anyway, in which case you should also resign because you should not be willing to work for someone who would do this to America. 
I can't reiterate enough. These are not some goofball, hothead, ill-informed, you know, um, you know, street urchin types, or just, just these are these are these are noted, profoundly uh, accomplished military leaders, decorated leaders, they're trying to wave the flag. They're trying to say, and their real message is, I want to just say something about accountability. They're basically saying there has to be accountability. This isn't like, you know, we made a miscalculation and, and a military error. and We didn't realize how armed they would be, or we didn't realize something else. And so we lost some soldiers due to an understandable mistake. They're saying nobody who's had military training, nobody who has experience in military operations would ever have approached the withdrawal of Afghanistan in this way. They're just saying the message is someone has to be accountable. It's not enough for Biden to show up at the, uh, at the Air Force Base and receive the remains of these precious Americans who lost their lives. It's not enough for him to stand there. By the way, checking his watch during the program, like, can he get on with this already? But it's not enough for him just to show up and say, we're so terribly sorry. Not, not enough. There has to be accountability. Who made this decision? Who called the shots? And as you may have recognized that uh, our guest, Raymond Ibrahim, was alluding to and others, many people are connecting the dots between Biden and the millions put in his coffers through his son's allegiance to China and engagement with China and China now greatly emboldened and greatly in, uh, empowered by America's withdrawal of Afghan from Afghanistan. I mean, somebody, there has to be accountability. There has to be an explanation who decided this, why, and who is culpable. This accountability thing is something that somehow when there are conservatives in office or holding any position, they're relentlessly held accountable by the media because the media goes after every single, even innocent mistake, relentlessly runs headlines every day until somebody says, okay, okay, it was my fault, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the hit, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I will resign or something. The media is already trying to move on from this disaster in Afghanistan without holding anyone accountable. One thing these officers are saying, the flag officers for America are saying, is, no, somebody has to be held accountable. Somebody does. Somebody has to say, yeah. And I'll tell you folks, the same point they're making, I mean, it's almost astonishing in America how we lose the, what, what sense of, of, of accountability really is. We're now eight plus months into the, and it's not the Biden administration. I mean, he's you know, got the job title, but whoever's running it, as I always say, I think it's Obama compounded with Soros and, you know, I don't know, um, a bunch of other, the leftist cabal, uh, Susan Rice, Valerie Jarrett, running the country from the sidelines, calling into Biden every day, telling him what to do. You know, Kamala Harris isn't running anything and everybody knows this. So we have a, we have a non-accountable entity, cabal, running the country, nobody's held accountable for what happened in Afghanistan. Well, the same thing is true if you think about the border. Just ask yourself for a moment, when in world history has it ever happened that the alleged elected leader of a country abandons the southern border, or any border, you have criminals, drug traffickers, child sex traffickers, 
uh, Islamic terrorists. You have mobs of caravans of, of, of impoverished people from Central and Southern Central and, and America and Mexico pouring over the border. No, we don't even have a border anymore. And in America, nobody in the media is able to hold or even tries to hold anyone accountable. Who's in charge of this policy that says abandon the southern border? I mean, and, and, and how do you, I mean, holding them accountable has to mean somebody has to say, oh yeah, this is my plan. I devised this, I'm responsible. And then you can fire them and maybe even prosecute them. But we have lost any sense of what accountability even means. Because the left controls so much of the media, so much of the narrative, so much of the narrative that comes out of the, of the world of academia, that comes out of the, uh, every outlet for news except for conservative shows like this, the whole concept of accountability for every radical, horrific policy this administration is following, the entire sense of accountability is just off the table. Don't talk about it. Don't follow up, nobody asks questions, nobody gets investigated, nobody gets prosecuted, nobody gets charged, nothing happens. We just let them destroy the country before our very eyes, which leads me to something I wanna say, and I think it's really important to keep this in mind. A growing number of Americans are recognizing that the present administration is not in any degree trying to protect America, to protect America's interests, to protect America's military, to strengthen our military, to enforce a border, to have a sovereign nation, to have any sense of a rational economy. Because they're proposing just, I mean, they're so loopy. It's letting, like letting a five-year-old decide the family budget and, and you know, budgeting for and buying you know, billions of dollars for a family that can't hardly put their monthly rent together. I mean, you have crazy level conduct at every level of the government. And it is true that the media is not holding them accountable, that they just won't do it. The media isn't. Most of the powers that be in Washington will not. It's becoming incumbent on the people to hold this administration accountable, to ask the questions, to push the questions, to insist on answers, to say there has to be a better answer to what you're doing than just, we did it and we're done and we're moving along and now we're not talking about that anymore. That's really, that has been the approach of this administration on every issue. They just don't answer. And they think they can get away with it and the media will let them get away with it. But I actually think in America, you have a growing, I mean, in the millions and millions and millions of Americans who recognize something is deeply, horribly wrong in this country and that we don't have enough people in the elected positions in Washington and the appointed positions of people with power to do something willing to stand up and hold these people accountable. It is why you're hearing from someone like the Flag Officers for America. They're just saying, could somebody please, some, we're going to point this out, at least we have a little bit of a bully pulpit, a little bit of a, a national platform. The American people are not going to continue to tolerate the obvious destruction of America happening at the hands of the present Biden administration. They're just not going to continue tolerating it. I have a little clip I want to ask Matt to play before I get to my final story. This is a clip, just so you know what happens. Very, very short, six seconds. 
But this is what happened when the last American military plane, when we announced, hey, we're out of here, we're leaving, don't worry, you know, we don't really care about our soldiers, and we don't really care about our military people, and we don't really care about the Afghan civilians who helped us, who are now going to be slaughtered. We announced we're leaving, and I just want to show you a short clip of what happened at the airport in Kabul after the Americans took off, their last plane took off and left Afghanistan. Here it is. You see what they're doing? This is how they celebrate America's departure. And there were scenes like this all over Afghanistan. The Taliban, which is just one of the many iterations of Islamic jihadists who follow the teachings of the Quran, as you just heard brilliantly explained by Raymond Ibrahim, follow those teachings because in their heart and soul, in the depth of their being, that's what they believe in. And they follow those teachings, and so therefore, their mission in life, whether they're Taliban, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, any of the group, and name any Islamic terrorist group, it's all the same. They're all rooted in the teachings of Islam that tell people, tell them, you must, to be a true and devout Muslim, you must kill or convert the infidels. To shorten the expression, kill or convert infidels, there was a statement out of one of the leaders of the Taliban that just recently just said, yeah, the world is going to come under the submission of Islam. The world is going to be, is going to submit to Islam. It's just a matter of time. And they mean millennia time. They're never going to stop unless they feel and sense brute force of the good people of the world who don't want to live under the ugly darkness of Islam. One last quick story to tell you before we rock to go to our uh, Why It Matters to You. Um, this has a little bit of a long name, but I want to explain something. When censorship is evil, uh, Shanna Chapel versus Sidney Sheehan. Shanna Chapel is the mother of one of the people who was killed in the suicide bombings uh, at the Kabul airport on August 26th. She wrote in a letter. She's uh, active in social media. Uh, and so she wrote in, um, basically, on her own social media, basically a letter to uh, a note to Joe Biden. So her name is, Sh uh, you see, Shanna Campbell, Chapel, excuse me, Shanna Chapel. She writes a letter, and I mean, she's, she's devastated. She's lost her 20 year old son, your precious baby. I mean, any mother, any age, losing a child is, you know, beyond description, horrific pain. She's upset because she lost her child in Afghanistan, a, an American military person, because of the extremely reckless and irresponsible way that Biden chose to pull out of Afghanistan. So she puts this letter up, this note up, and she basically, it's a tweet, uh, Joe Biden, this message is for you. I know my face is etched in your brain because she went to the, uh, she went to the um, Dover where they received the remains of the uh, precious young soldiers who lost their lives in Afghanistan. She's there. Biden was there. Biden had a meeting with the families who are waiting to greet the remains of their children and, uh, and loved ones. Um, and as one person who attended the meeting said, it didn't go very well for Biden because the people are angry. Because that this is everyone understands. If you have a family member who serves in the military, yeah, you're understanding that your your loved one's life is being placed in harm's way. You, you do realize that, but you assume that the policies and the strategy used by the leaders of this country will at least be responsible, at least be designed to protect to the extent possible against this kind of 
uh, of you know terrorist bombing because America abandons. Um, I can't even go. Okay, I want to just tell you what she had to say. This message is for you, President Biden. I know my face is etched in your brain. I was able to look you straight in the eyes yesterday and have words with you. After I lay my son to rest, you'll be seeing me again. Remember, I'm the one who stood five inches from your face and was letting you know I would never get to hug my son again. Hear his laugh. And then you tried to interrupt me and give me your own sob story because Biden has been doing this. Oh, I, I understand. I lost a son, too. It's like it's all about me. And so she says to him, and I had to inter- and you try to interrupt me and give me your own sob story. I had to tell you that this isn't about you. So don't make it about you. You then say, you just want me to know, you know how I feel. And I let you know that you don't know how I feel and you don't have the right to tell me you know how I feel. You rolled your F-bomb eyes um, in your head like you're annoyed with me. And I let you know that the only reason I was talking to you was out of respect for my son. And that was the only reason why. So she has this encounter with Biden. She writes it out on social media. And the reason I'm telling you this story is I want you to think about it. First of all, my heart goes out to every person in this country who has any connection to the people who were lost in the Kabul and the suicide bombing. I I mean, the precious soldiers lost, their spouses, their their husbands and wives, their kids, their parents, their siblings. Horrific, horrific thing to go through. She's trying to write about it and say how she found Biden's attitude obnoxious, condescending. Uh, May I tell you about myself again kind of thing. And so she's, you know, and she ends up saying in this lengthy posting, uh, my son's blood is on your hands. All 13 of them, the 13 Americans killed, their blood is on your hands. And she's basically saying, I'm going to show up at the White House. Um, And she said, if President Trump was in his rightful seat, then my son and the other heroes would still be alive. You'll be seeing me again very soon. Uh, Anyway, so she's saying she's going to come be outside the White House. So what happened to her is social media canceled her. They, they removed her Facebook account. They removed her Instagram account um, and because she's not allowed to say things that are insulting to President Biden. I want you to think about that. Biden's conduct, according to any rational, military, experienced military person, was at the very least profoundly, abjectly, you know, reckless, senseless, indefensible. His conduct's that way. She writes to say, you know, are you going to hear from me again because, you know, you caused this. And the answer of social media, our modern day censors, our modern day uh, First Amendment speech regulators, and do not tell me that, you know, Google and all the social media companies can't really violate the First Amendment because that's just there for the government. They promulgate and push and, and, and enforce the left-wing narrative on every subject, social media does. And so they're saying, basically, you can't insult our guy, the president, so you're done. Facebook, you're done. Instagram, you're done. I want to contrast that with someone whose name, if I say it, you might think, I remember that name. Who was it? Cindy Sheehan. She was a mom who lost her son in the war um, in, un, under um, President, uh, in the Iraq war under President George W. Bush. So she lost her son. She's a grieving mother. She takes to social media. She camps out near George Bush's ranch in Texas and later camped out in front of the White House for months and years. And her basic thing is she's anti-war. 
She didn't think we ever should have been in the Iraq war, shouldn't have been there. And if we hadn't been in the Iraq war, you know, then, then her son would be here. And she, wanted, she was pushing for George W. Bush to be impeached for getting into the war in Iraq, which she opposed. So she has her view. I don't, I don't you know, I'm not even going to go off on, on the legitimacy of her view about the war. But she was covered by every mainstream media outlet in this country, not just for months. I'm telling you, for years. She was a hero in the media. Listen to the great anti-war leader, Cindy Sheehan. And, and she was not, not just not canceled. She was given headlines, front and center, interviews. You know, what's your view on this? Your statement on this? What do you think about this? Treated like a hero and an expert who had the same experience, very sadly, of losing a son. Okay, I'm sorry for every family who's ever lost a family member in, in any war. I mean, it's horrific to go through. But I'm making the point, you see how far the media is willing to say, this is the social, the social media tech the giants who pretty much control what everyone thinks and knows. You couldn't have found back in 2005, when Cindy Sheehan kicked off her efforts, you could not have found an American in the country who hadn't heard of her. Everyone knew, if they even read news, who she was. And she was allowed to continue her diatribe against Bush. I'm not making any commentary about the Iraq war, Bush, or anybody else. I'm just saying, she got to talk. This mom, in this era, with the social media and the left-wing media, is so emboldened, so strident, so one-sided, so determined, they shut down a grieving mother because she's complaining about the president's, the, the way in which he engaged in the withdrawal from Afghanistan that caused the death of her son. Nobody is really claiming in the military, by the way. I mean, no one's really saying, well, there's nothing else we could have done. No one is really defending this exit strategy because no one's being held accountable for it. But I, I want you to think about how just, I mean, it's not just censorship. It's why I put the word evil in this caption for this portion of the show. It's evil. It's evil that says a mother, grief beyond you know, the calculation people can understand, grief over losing a son, and she can't talk. She can't put her heart and soul out there. She can't tell the American people to think about this because she's disrespecting the dear leader, Joe Biden. So Facebook, Instagram, and pretty soon she'll be a non-existent thing in Google searches. You'll, you'll like, you can't find her name anymore. This is what will happen. Because they have decided the purpose of media in this country is to bolster and push forward and legitimize the left-wing view on everything. And anyone who dares disagree with them must be censored. Probably talk more about that story, but we're out of time for today. So I want to turn and tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. And so we start our show. The first topic we had uh, this morning, today, was Chase Bank canceling Lieutenant General Flynn, literally canceling his credit cards. Chase uh, Bank canceled the credit cards of, of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, citing reputational danger for the bank from continued association with Flynn. This is Michael Flynn, lifelong Democrat, who can explain that, a decorated American military hero, former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency under Barack Obama, but he supported President Trump, and he believes 
the 2020 election was stolen. Chase Bank is casting its lot with the radical left, apparently believing a new power structure has taken control and kowtowing to it is wise. There is reputational danger in Chase's action. That will tell, time will tell whose reputation is in danger. Maybe it's Chase's reputation is in danger. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is an American hero. And on calls for resignations aftermath of the Afghanistan fiasco, U.S. retired flag officers openly calling for the resignations of Millie and Austin. Flag officers, by definition, have stature and experience with U.S. military strategy and U.S. military discipline. They know the importance of accountability and leadership generally. They know the imperative of accountability and military leadership. No one at the top of the chain of military command has acknowledged fault or apologized. The one Marine officer calling for accountability has been dismissed by the Pentagon. The American people will not tolerate this brazen, amoral irresponsibility. Leaders who have zero moral authority will soon find they're not leading anyone anymore. And when censorship is evil, Shanna Campbell versus Cindy Sheehan. Cindy Sheehan was and is a leftist who lost a son in the Iraq war, and her grief drove her to publicly protest and call for the impeachment of President George Bush. Sheehan was a darling of the mainstream media, a moral authority, a voice given plenty of airtime um, of that era. Shanna Chapel lost a son in the suicide bombing at the Kabul airport on August 26th. And her grief has driven her to publicly protest and denounce President Joe Biden. Big Tech, Facebook, and Instagram have taken down her public posts. Big Tech censorship is un-American and anti-American, and every American soul knows it. Big Biden, Big Tech, mainstream media are blithely assuming Americans either aren't noticing or have unending patience with this evil. These, my friends, are wrong assumptions. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America Can We Talk? Truth about America. Can you hear